This episode contains discussion about sexual assault and domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. I think the question for me is more, does Louis really forgive him? I'm not sure that he does. I mean, he takes him in again, but is he totally open to him? This is the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire podcast, and I'm your host, Naomi Kerrigan. Writer, comedian, and all-around vampire zealot. I mean it. I am dogmatic and dedicated in my obsession. Each week, we're talking about the latest episode of AMC's adaptation of Interview with the Vampire. Today, we're discussing episode six, which is titled, Like Angels Put in Hell by God, but which I've decided to call, Recording a Song with Your Side Piece is Not an Apology. This episode, everyone is playing games. And I get to the bottom of it with Levin Atkin, the director of episodes five and six. And afterwards, we're joined once again by horror author Jewel Gomez. I couldn't help myself. I have more questions for Jewel. Too many vamps, too little time. Now, do I really have to warn you about spoilers again? It's like, come on, keep up. There are spoilers, all right? He only beat me the one time, officer. It's not his fault. Classic Stockholm, eh, Doc? Are we the sum of our worst moments? Can we be forgiven if we do not forgive others ourselves? You took Lestat back. The vampire bond. There is no human equivalent. In episode six, we see years pass as Louis recovers from, you know, getting beaten to a pulp and being thrown from the air. Okay, that takes a minute. Claudia is with him the whole time and she helps take care of him while Lestat tries to make amends because he wants to be back with them. And for some reason, what finally wins Louis back is a record of a love song Lestat wrote that his side piece Antoinette sings. What? What? Louis decides to take Lestat back, but y'all, Lestat is still seeing Antoinette, a woman he told them he killed. And we learn Antoinette let him cut off her finger. Antoinette, honey, don't be letting a man cut off your finger. Is there some 1937 version of The Secret we could get her reading? Something to help her manifest? Not being a side piece with nine fingers? But Claudia has decided she's finally had enough of Lestat. And to prove it, she beats him at chess and Lestat loses his mind, y'all. He's like, come back here and finish! It almost has a mommy dearest, no more wire hangers energy. It's also in this moment that Claudia telepathically tells Louis that there's only one way out of their situation. They have to kill Lestat. Mm. Meanwhile, back in Dubai, Malloy takes the medicine and then he has this fever dream about meeting Louis in San Francisco in the 1970s. But then when the camera pans over, we see Rashid is there too. Y'all, what? Who is Rashid? Is this a flashback? A dream? Is this real? What does it mean? Let's jump right into the episode with director Levin Akin. He's a Swedish filmmaker who wrote and directed the film And Then We Danced, a queer drama about the world of dance that received a 15-minute standing ovation at Cannes in 2019. What have you done today? Also, he is a huge Anne Rice fan. Who could be better for the job? Levin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Naomi, for having me. Look, I have a lot of hard-hitting questions. Okay. But first, in this episode, there's a heated discussion about whether or not Emily Dickinson is a vampire. What other historical figures do you think were most likely vampires? 
Oh, oh, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I want to say perhaps Tesla. Oh, could have, he could have okay. been a vampire. He Why? could be a vampire. Why Nikola maybe. Tesla? Tell me, what are you thinking? I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking about. Was it David Bowie who played him in a movie? Maybe that I just got that image in my <laughs> well, head. I I don't know, but also yes, Bowie is vampiric. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, maybe mm-hmm. Bowie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? You know, I've I'm not used to having the tables turned in this way, Levin. Oh. Okay. So, am I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready. I think I think Bowie and Iman are both very good ones. Oh um, yeah. Iman for sure. <laughs> oh, and also Grace Jones, but she's yes, still around. of course. I mean, for I mean Grace yeah. Jones at the Hollywood Bowl in her seventies, hula hooping. Honey, I can't even stand up for more than ten minutes. Oh wow, amazing! No, that's fantastic. I know. Obviously, you understand the vamps, okay? That you go way back. Can you tell me about when you first discovered Anne Rice? I'd heard about her and then I saw the film. So that was my first. And I was, I think I was 14. Oh, wow. Okay. Formative. Formative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very formative. So I, I remember that screening very well. And I loved vampires. I loved films. And then I saw that film. And, you know, I was this little gay kid who, you know, there was a lot of subtext in that movie that I could pick up. And then I remember going to my school library and f- I found the vampire Lestat. Mm. And I was like, ooh. So actually that was the first book I read, the vampire Lestat. Okay. Yeah, it was a game changer for me. And then I read all the books and I was pretty much obsessed. Perhaps too early, you know, for a kid to read that. <laughs> I think it was like 15 <laughs> or something. <laughs> Do you remember your parents having any reaction to you reading these books? <laughs> like a little teen and you're like, in the corner with the vampire Lestat. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, they didn't really get it. Like, my parents are, we're, we're originally from Georgia, the former Soviet Republic. So they had no reference to Anne Rice or to pop culture in that sense. Maybe I was like 12 or 13. I, I wanted Madonna's sex book for my birthday. <laughs> and I got it. And they were like, oh, okay, you know, because they didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, so your parents are immigrants who have worked hard to give you a better life, to give you opportunities. And you said, give me sex book. You (laughs) said, this is what I want. Yeah. Yes, I know, right? Uh, It's it's pretty fantastic. But, you know, that's what they fought for. That's what they worked hard for, in a way. (laughs) Okay, you're coming to us live from Sweden. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Interview with a Vampire is your first time directing a U.S. TV series? Yes, Yes. Tell me everything. Levin, how does it happen? How are you out here working in Sweden and you're like, yeah. get me on the Anne Rice show? Yeah, I mean, it is really weird and I still can't believe it. <laughs> so how did it happen? Well, I did a film called And Then We Danced and that sort of opened some doors for me. And I got agents and then I read on like an Anne Rice fan page that I'm following on Facebook yeah. that they were going to do a TV series of Into the Vampire. And I just emailed my agents and I told them, get me on that show. Wow. Wow. And they were like, huh? Okay. <laughs> and then finally I met Rollin Jones mm-hmm. and I was very nervous. But luckily Rollin thought that, hey, why not, you know, give this guy a, a try? <laughs> he was a risk taker, Rollin. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it's so cool. I mean, the first thing that I find impossible is that an agent was useful. Amazing. (laughs) 
Yes, I was just, you know, walking around pinching myself every day. I was like forgetting that I was there to direct you. I was like, it, <laughs> it was a really a special moment for me. And, and, you know, I also got to do when they first, when Louis first meets Molloy in San Francisco. Can you imagine? I got to do I that. I know. Scene. That's crazy. Oh my God. I, I still can't believe it. I, I can't believe I was even there. It's crazy. I'm like very happy yeah. for you. I'm because I'm very happy for the 14 year old in you. Because that is huge. Thank the you. idea of, you know, something that opens your mind up, opens your heart up, and makes you start to think about what's possible for yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, th those books were my escape. She showed me a world, like she showed me a queer world. She showed me these characters. She showed me that the world was bigger than, you know, I knew. And, 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 you know, it brought me all the way to actually being in her world and, and directing. And it's, it was very, it was such a special moment. And also just now talking to you, Naomi, about it, it's, you know, it's, it's really strange to me. Not only did you get to, you know, as you said, it was a pinch me moment. You directed episodes five and six, which are the most tumultuous episodes for me in the in the show and the most tumultuous time in louis and lestat's relationship mm. what is the core of the conflict how would you describe it in these episodes you know those two episodes are essentially sort of the the darkest days it's very much everything comes to its end things will never be you know what they used to be and i remembered reading episode five and by the end of that episode, I was thinking, how, how, how does Lestat ever come back from this? And then I started reading episode six and, you know, how he sort of slowly tears Louis down in a way and just talks his way back into their lives. And I thought it was brilliant, but also, you know, uh, frightening. Mm -hmm. Louis, I don't know what possessed me that night. I was someone I don't want to be anymore. I've changed. I'm nothing without you. Nothing without both of you. The silence is cruel. And you were never cruel, Louis. I, I always uh, tried to approach the material from, you know, a point of, and, and I know they're going to laugh now, the actors, because I said this so much, but like, what's the reality of the situation, you know? How do we react in these situations? Because, you know, it is a toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting to, you know, approach these scenes as an adult, having read these mm -hmm. books as a kid. Yeah. That was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was also a little dramatic child, right? And when you would read these romances, it seemed, I want someone to love me that much. And then when you're an adult, on the flip side, you're like, this is sick. This is twisted. We have to <laughs> yeah. have boundaries. Right? Exactly. Like, yes, of course. You see the kind of your, your relationship to it change. And as you said, sort of for all the fantasy of it, the emotions are real regardless of the time. Precisely. How do we stay in the truth of what the feelings are? Mm. Because this episode, as we say, you know, this is a tumultuous time. This is the point of no return, the darkest of days. And we see Lestat begging for forgiveness over the course of years, trying to win Louis back. And he has just a real messed up way of apologizing. He had engaged a local record company. And when the musicians they hired proved unsatisfactory, he played all the instruments himself. That's his voice. Yeah. He pressed only one album. 
had the master recordings destroyed. You're listening to an inferior re-recording now. The audacity of it all was matched only by its sincerity. He had made the near-perfect Valentine with one flaw. Pathetic. One perfectly premeditated flaw. Six years of begging, you think a song's gonna get a rise out of me? Did you like it? This her sing? It's a clear voice. I wanted no obstacle to the lyric. Write me a song and put your lover's voice on it. What the fuck is wrong with your hair? Louis is soaking wet. I swim fast and I drive. You swim the Mississippi to find me? Less that. Less that. I mean, can we talk a little bit about, you know, as a director, getting into the mindset, right? Because for the character of Louis, it's been years, right, since he's faced Lestat. And then we see this moment. When you're talking to Jacob and Sam, how do you kind of work with them to get in that mindset of like, okay, it's been six years. You swam the Mississippi. Bring me that energy. Rolling. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. No. I mean, again, how do you find the truth in a scene like that? It's essentially, at the core of it, a lover's reuniting. Right. But also, there is so much frustration coming from Louis in that scene, where he's, you know, been having this stalker, essentially, Mm. slowly nudging his way back into his life. I remember talking to Jacob about it when we were having lunch. I think in that scene, it feels as if also he's had enough. He knows in a way that he's never going to be free of Lestat. And he also says mm. that later on. It's like, he, he he might as well just relent. You know, it's very sad. I, toward the end of that episode, he, he tells Claudia that, you know, what difference does it make? Right, I know. That was so sad. That was so heartbreaking to it's me. It's so you know, when sad. He, when he, yeah, when to me Claudia's too. like, look, he's still seeing Antoinette. And, yeah. and Louis is like, what does it matter? It's like, oh, Louis, honey, this is the problem. I want everyone to have better self-esteem. I do too. I want Louis to realize he can do better. <laughs> Me too. But, but you know, that's his prison. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. book and, and, then his, and, and this whole season is like him trying to get over a bad breakup. That's what it's about, essentially. Right. And he's still, you know, what is it, 100 years later, you know, you're still trying to sort of understand and deal with what happened in this relationship. That's pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. And you see here that it's like 2022 Mm. and he's still mad. Yeah. Relatable. Relatable. I've (laughs) definitely been mad at people for a hundred (laughs) years. You know what I mean? Of course, of course. And, and, And he, you know, Lestat made him a vampire you know, he became in a way his his everything. That's all he has. All you know, he became isolated from his family, his friend. They all died off. He has nothing. Yeah. You know, it is classic, abusive, toxic. He's isolated, Louis. Yeah. Well, this brings me actually to a really important scene, as well as a voicemail we got from a podcast listener. Levin, the listeners are calling oh, in. Oh wow! They're calling in. They've got thoughts. Fantastic. Let's listen to this voicemail so we can get into it. Hi, Naomi. I did watch the first episode. I was very intrigued. I did not read the book. The only thing was I didn't understand why Louis's brother killed himself. And then I thought, well, maybe Lestat had gotten into his head because he wants Louis 
so badly, but he wants Louis to come to him. So what better way to get someone and get into someone's head by killing a loved one and they're in mourning? And at that point, they're vulnerable. So anyway, I just wanted to know if that was why uh, Louis' brother killed himself, because Lestat put that in his head so that he could get to Louis. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you for calling in. You know I love when people leave voicemails. And you're asking the question that Louis asks in this episode. Did you have anything to do with Paul's death? No. I would never hurt your brother. It's just something I always... Never, Louis. I thought this was such a huge moment. Like, when he asked that question, my, my like, I was like, oh, my God. Have you been sitting on this for 30 years? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, have you been with this mm. person wondering this all this time? Mm. I thought that was, like, huge. Can you tell me, like, your thoughts on that question? Yes. Like, he says so- no. He says no. He says no. You know, him having had this question, like you say, for 30 years and never asked before, what does that mean? Does it mean that he had his doubts, but he never wanted to ask because he didn't want the truth? And now when he sort of, you know, they're standing at this threshold and he's like, I'm going to ask that question. But I think that Lestat did not have anything to do with it, actually. I think he's Mm. telling the truth. Uh, that's what I think. Interesting. What do you think? It is so tricky to me because we know Lestat is a manipulator, mm. right? Like that's sort of, that's what he does. And so it's, this is a real tough one for me. On one hand, the way he responds, I'm like, yes, I believe that. But at the same time, he did get in Paul's head at the dinner table. But if he did do it, he's unredeemable in a way. Yeah, that's true. Which is why I think he did not do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who made you? His name was Magnus. He took me from my room in Paris as I kicked and screamed. He kept me for a week, locked in a room full of corpses. Some freshly killed, some bloated and black. But they all looked like me. My coloring, my physique. My own eyes staring back at me from rotting faces. He fed on me every night. And then he'd put me back in the tower with the lookalike corpses. I thought for sure I'd be one of them, but instead he turned me into this. No grand history of vampiric origins or physiology, no rules, no counsel. Just a sweeping hand to a pile of money and the sight of him throwing himself into a fire. And then I was alone. I cried. I called to God. (laughs) I didn't want this. But I have a capacity for enduring. It's why I don't particularly like being abandoned. Oh, my God, Sam Reed. I swear to God. Yes. My big question is, why do you think Lestat is telling his story now? To me, I think it's that he has to give something at this moment. Like, he knows that he has to give them something to be able to move forward. So I think it's purely tactical. Uh And he's very sort of earnest when he tells it. You know, it feels very 
down to earth and it's not, you know, as flamboyant as it usually is. It's very sort of grounded and and and, and direct. Right. Was that something you and Sam talked about when looking at this monologue? Mm-hmm. We talked about it and we said that this has to be different. It has to feel different for you to sort of lay that final punch toward Louis and actually winning him over for real, you know, without right. a doubt. Right, right, right. Because you don't want, we, I don't want the audience to feel that Louis is an idiot. You know what I mean? Like it has, you, you have to understand that Louis is like, okay, like he finally gave me something truthful and something real. Yes. He's being vulnerable. Speaking of sort of this intimacy and this question of the toxicity of this relationship, do you think Lestat deserves forgiveness? This is an, an interesting question because I was thinking about it. You know, when you read the books and when you read uh, The Vampire Lestat, Queen of the Damned, you know, this, it's told from Lestat's perspective. So in a way, he's sort of manipulating the reader and you really love him and he's amazing. And you're like inside his mind and he motivates all of his, you know, bad decisions and all of the bad stuff he does, you know, because you understand him. And when you see him objectively like this from the outside, you see him with different eyes Mm -hmm. and it becomes more complicated, I think. And also this is Louis' retelling of Lestat. Right. I think the question for me is more, does Louis really forgive him? I'm not sure that he does. I mean, he takes Mm. him in again, but is he totally open to him? Or are, you know, has he locked off some places? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Right? You got to lock off. Yeah, you got to lock off. You yeah, got to lock off sure. some places with Lestat. For sure. And you can see that in relationships, I feel, you know, that people who have been together for too long, where you're like, do they really, are they really, should they really, what's going on here? Or is it just, you know, they're comfortable and it's easier like this and you just keep going. Right, right. Lestat will not let him go. And we also see he won't let Claudia go. Let me go, Lestat. And Louis are of need. I'm afraid I can't allow that. He's very fragile right now. Worse than the last time you abandoned him. When you filled your head with knowledge and hitched a ride on the motorbike. <laughs> we wouldn't talk of it. Louis insisted I not ask. I love our family, but the rules are no secrets. Fortunately for our family, when I put my mind to it, I can hear the thoughts of other vampires at a very great distance. Bastard. He thinks of you often. Bruce. Fucking bastard. I couldn't agree more. What he did to you was in very poor taste. Could you imagine? If something like that happened to you again, Louis would never forgive himself. Back in your cage, sweetheart. We endure each other for Louis' happiness. I hate him. Yeah. Why? Why won't he just let Claudia go? Because to me, one of the things I find so tough to understand is that Lestat never wanted Claudia. He made her to appease Mm. Louis. And so to me, I'm like, 
Yes. Why wouldn't Lestat let her go so he can have Louis all to himself again? Because that's all he wants. Because he knows that that he's never going to be enough for for Louis, I think. I think that, you know, he doesn't want, he knows that Louis is going to be depressed, that he's going to be thinking about Claudia. And he just doesn't want to rock the status quo of the situation. He just wants to keep it as as is. Yeah. Because it's going to be trouble for uh, Lestat. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Well, I don't know. I feel like Lestat is his own trouble. Yeah. If he could just be nice yeah. and stop having side pieces. Because yeah. here's my other thing too, it kills me. Mm. When he mentions this Bruce thing, and knowing what we know of Lestat and how vengeful he is, how destructive he is, why didn't he go kill Bruce? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And that made me very, like, I just felt like, oh, so you knew all this time. Yeah. And we all know you like to hurt people just for fun. Could you go kill Bruce for the family, please? I was mad. Yeah, me too, actually. This was tough. One of the things I found interesting in this, too, was the idea of enduring mm. comes up, right? Especially from Lestat. Like, he's like, I endure. Or he goes, we endure each other, as he says to Claudia in this. And in a lot of ways, too, Louis is sort of enduring mm. Lestat, saying basically, what else can I do? So I'm just going to kind of stay with him. Is enduring something to even be proud of? It doesn't sound great to me. I agree. I think it's, you know, it's like a, a way of suffering. But I see it almost as a duty to go through these things. And, and like you say, to endure, you know, being a vampire, living forever, essentially, is in itself an endurance. Mm -hmm. So I think in this context... You know, Louis is saying, "What is the point? This is my, this is all I have." I, you know, there he doesn't know any other vampires. He doesn't know anything else. You know, why not just endure this and just you know let this pass? Because like, mm -hmm. I think you see time differently if you live forever. So it's like, what is ten? You know, it's going to be ten bad years maybe, but then things are going to yeah. change. And I mean, you're right, but it's just funny where you're like ten bad years what's one bad decade sure when you have sure of years because you don't live. really have this sort of as we do or as i do where it's like it's now or never like right. i gotta get my shit together i gotta do this now because i'm like you know pushing 45 or whatever and you know you're just like really hustling to try to like fulfill all your dreams but then it's like but then what do you do Right, I can really feel that in in also these episodes, and especially episode six. He's like, "What's the point? I we might as well endure this and try to make the best of this because this is what we have. These are the cards that we've been dealt." Well, that brings me to Malloy. You know, in present day, when Louis is offering Malloy eternal life, and Malloy turns it down so quickly, yeah, which we know is not what it was like in San Francisco in the 70s. I interpret it as having heard this story, he is like, oh, this actually doesn't sound great. I do not want to be a vampire, right? Yeah. Like now kind of knowing what he knows, he's like, no, thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. And I also think, you know, being older and having seen, you know, what a effed up place the world is and everything is going to hell and they're, you know, they're in the middle of the pandemic and, you know, climate change and wars and everything. I think Malloy's like, I don't want to stay here. Like, come on. Right, right. Well, this episode ends with, you know, 
honey, I don't know. Is Malloy having a dream? Mm. Is he having a memory? Like, I live for a camera pan over. I love when a camera pans and reveals something. And then he's there. I love that, too. I screamed Oh, you end. did? That's I amazing. Screamed. I freaked I out did. when I was reading it, too. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. This character who's been just in the background, quietly attractive, but not telling us too much. Mm. I know you can't tell me any more about that final scene with Rashid, so I won't even try. Lucky for you, I give up easy. But before you leave, I wanted us to end with my favorite segment, A Little Taste. Now, of course, without giving away any spoilers for the big finale, can you give us a little taste of what's to come? (laughs) Yes. This series is like everything I wished for as a fan. You know, you just wanted somebody to come in and do these books justice. And I mean, there's so many amazing things that are going to happen in this series moving forward that I know, you know, that are in the books, that is so cool that you're going to freak out. Like, it's like, you, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's just so much fun stuff that's going to happen. And so many things that Rollin has, you know, planted now that's going to come later um, and, yeah, be revealed later. That's, it's really cool. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Levin, thank you so, so much for coming and talking to me. This was wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time and telling me everything. Thank you. It was so lovely. It was really wonderful. You know what? Levin is a kind soul, a more forgiving soul than I am, because I'll tell you what, I'm still team murder Lestat. All right, I'm all aboard the murder train. You know, the train he made when he killed everybody because he wouldn't let Claudia leave. I know Levin is basically a vampire expert, but we got another expert on the pod today, too. After talking all things vampires and erotic in episode two, horror author Jewel Gomez is back. And honey, thank God for it. Welcome back to the show, Jewel Gomez. How you doing today? Oh, I'm great. Great to talk to you, Naomi. I feel really good. It's good you're feeling good because I'll tell you this. Episode six, honey, did not leave me feeling good. This episode (laughs) coming off the heels of five, I just felt like it was another pummeling in a way. (laughs) It was six is heavy. Oh, yeah. Louis has gone through the ringer and... It's not that often you get to see a vampire who has to recover. You know, usually in movies or on TV, it's like bada bing, bada bang, and their injuries are gone. Mm -hmm. But this is a real knitting back together. And I think that's an emotional thing to watch. Yeah, because what we get in this episode, you know, that it's taken him years. I believe it's like three years for him to kind of get back to who he was, you know, being able to just like walk around. You know, this is an episode about the family dynamic, the group dynamic, and how it has changed, forever changed, based on what Lestat has done. What do you think is different about the vampire relationship? Should they even be trying to be a family? You know what I mean? Like, Are they just really trying to make fetch happen, as they say in Mean Girls? You know, are they really forcing something that is not right? That's what makes this episode so difficult. Because, you know, we're we're thinking like mortals. Like, oh, they could get a therapist and work it through. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I think it is valuable for vampires to try to create something. But you really have to come at it, as Louis says at some point, no lies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that Lestat is ever capable of being fully present, 
and fully honest. Even when he says he's going to compromise or be honest, I don't know that you can trust him in particular. And then you add in Claudia. She's in many ways superior to Louis and Lestat. Mm. She's got a really strong mind, a Mm. strong intellect. Because they're like, she's a sweet little girl. It will be fine. And it's like, have you never met a teenage girl? (laughs) Right. Right. She will be our doll all of her life. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Wrong. Wrong. It's funny because it's like, I, I still don't think of her as smarter. What I think she is, though, she is colder. You know, mm-hmm. Louis, he is, he's bound by this love of Lestat. This also, as you said, like he's in his thrall. Then I think you have the fact that Lestat, he is so driven by power and control. Claudia just wants to be free. You see what I'm saying? Like she even had to kind of come around to realizing that she loved Louis, right? She had to kind of go away Mm -hmm. to come back. She is the one I think who is the least attached of this trio, which I think is what enables her to see clearly. You know what I mean? When she's like, this is what this dynamic is. And this dynamic is not right. And I don't have to stand for it. (laughs) It's basically what she's saying. Yes. Yes. And she's coming into her own as she goes out into the world and sees women. She's never going to become one. Mm -hmm. You know, she's never going to become a woman in the traditional sense. And I think that engenders her anger a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're right. She is chillier than Louis, certainly. And I think that's a big surprise to both of them. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not that she's smarter, but she's not as wedded to the values of mortals because she hasn't lived as long as a mortal. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she's chilly and ruthless. Yes, ruthless. Absolutely. Well, it's also interesting, too, you know, a big theme of the series is this idea of, you know, freedom versus repression. And certainly in this episode... Claudia is like, you know, she's saying to Louis, like, let's leave. Let's go to Europe. You know, let's make our own life. But I guess what I wonder, do you think you can really be free as a vampire? Do you think a vampire is any more free than a mortal? (laughs) You know, it's usually the stuff you take into your vampire life before you become a vampire that kind of shapes who you are. And if you have not been taught how to create family or what freedom really means, it would be hard to be free of someone like Lestat. Mm-hmm. It would be very hard. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. a, a significant element of who Claudia is growing up to be, that she tries to be free and what her brief freedom creates for her is assault. Mm -hmm. She takes that into her attitude about Louis and Lestat. She can't not have that be a part of how she responds. And the anger that's in her is stoked by this incidence with Bruce. And that's something Louis and Lestat don't really understand. 
-hmm. even when reading it in a diary, you can't really understand what it means to a woman to have that experience. And I think that's a very valuable part of the story for us to understand who Claudia is Mm -hmm. and why she wants to be free. Right. Why she will go to any lengths to be free. Right. Right. Well, she thinks the only way she can get free is to kill Lestat. Let's talk about this. What are the vampire rules around killing your maker? I mean, no, no good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. it's kind of like the way mortals look on patricide or matricide. Mm-hmm. You know, if any one of us killed one of our parents, it's considered the worst crime, except for killing your child. Uh-huh. Killing the person who made you a vampire sentences you to death among the vampires in the world. It's not really good. You can't really get away with mm-hmm. it. Oh, but in saying that, though, then it raises that other question, you know, can she ever really be free? Right? Because if if she thinks her only way to freedom is to kill Lestat, but then to do so would pretty much put a target on her back, there is no way out. There's no way out of this for her. The only way out of it for Claudia would be, you know, suddenly Lestat turns over a new leaf, <laughs> don't hold your breath, and decides, ah, I'll just let them go on their European tour. And I think what would be more likely to happen is that Lestat, when he finally does understand that Claudia is serious and powerful, mm-hmm. the possibility of him killing her is not that slim, mm-hmm. you know. He might want to just be done with her because he doesn't want the hassle. Right. And he knows he can't control her. She's not in love with him the way Louis is. Right. We've talked a bit about Louis being in love with Lestat, being in his thrall no matter what. But Claudia says to Louis, you know, when they're communicating telepathically, she's like, we're slaves to Lestat. Mm-hmm. And Louis's like, that's not true. Why do you why do you think it is that he doesn't see that anymore? Or do you think he's lying to himself? I'll tell you, when she says we're slaves to Lestat, I think Louis knows what slavery looks like in real life. Uh-huh. He doesn't feel that is true for him at this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't accept that slavery comes in different kinds of shapes and sizes and forms. But I think that's why he does that. He he kind of like says, little girl, you don't really know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. I know what slaves look like. I know what happens to them. I know what they can and can't do. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take in himself as a slave. He knows he's enthralled to Lestat, but I don't think he's able to see himself as a slave But someone who will treat you the way Lestat treats Louis is definitely not healthy. Louis kind of gets lost. I think, again, going back to the sensuality of it, we cannot underestimate he is in love. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, he kind of takes the position of the battered spouse who keeps forgiving. Right. You know? Right. 
It is, though, interesting to see the strength that Claudia gives Louis. Mm. She really is that person who's saying, we don't have to be like this anymore. You know, you deserve better. We deserve better. We can start over. The young person who sees all the opportunities in the world versus the person who was not told they had those options, right? Like, it's kind of, that's what you're kind of getting. (laughs) Right. It's a hard balance because she's, she's the young person who sees all the opportunities and that gives you hope that there's could be change. But she's also the young person who doesn't know much about the past. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't know what it's taken for Louis to get where he is. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a double edged sword in, in some ways. But the hope part of it is, I think, what is most valuable to Louis at this stage of the story. Right. My final question for you. If you were a vampire. Where would you live? And also, when would you live? What would be your preferred time period and location where you think you would feel the most free? (laughs) Gosh, if I were a vampire, I think I would live between (laughs) London and New York. Okay, okay. We love that. And it would be, and I know this seems crazy, but I would live, I'd love to live in London in the 1800s. Really? Number one, the clothes. Let's just start with the outfits. (laughs) You know, and I'm a a corset queen. (laughs) I I have several. So I could come with my own wardrobe. (laughs) And I just love the clothes. You wear bloomers on your bicycle. I just love that. (laughs) Uh, But also, (laughs) you could see, you could go to the theater every night of the week and see something different. That would be like heaven to me. Mm. And I know that as a woman of color, I probably wouldn't be invited to a lot of the salons. But <laughs> that's all right. I'd have my own vampire salon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jewel, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and talking all things episode six. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Naomi. This is great. I love talking to you. Y'all, I could listen to that corset queen all day. I'm telling you, if Jewel started a vampire salon, I would be there, okay? Because I see the appeal. We're talking wardrobe, good tones, all vibes. Let's all think about this. Before we go, I want to share a fun little overlap between this series and the original Anne Rice novels. In the last scene of episode six, where Daniel Malloy meets Louis at a bar, the setting is 1973, the same year that Anne Rice wrote the original interview with the vampire. Even more fun fact, Anne and her husband Stan lived in the hate neighborhood of San Francisco before moving to Berkeley, which is where it's believed she wrote Interview with the Vampire. Y'all, Anne wrote that book in just five weeks, turning her original short story into a 338-page novel that would launch an entire universe and create a whole generation of queer icons. Hi, Naomi. I am loving the podcast. I just got through watching episode six. What really gets me is in the end with Daniel and Louie and Rashida's there. Rashid is there. Okay, is he a witch? I'm wondering, was Rashid there truly or is he inserting himself in Daniel's dreams with magic? Because when he said um, infin- infinitus or whatever it was, it sounded like magic. It's not like a spell. Oh, I am, I am all in. Thank you and thank everyone for this. Thank Kara. 
Hey, Naomi, this is Maria. I just wanted to say that I loved the podcast and really enjoyed your interview with Sam Reed and Jewel Gomez. I'm so excited to be turned on to a new author of Jewel Gomez, as I am also a queer person of color and hearing her talk about the representation in the show and in the media and general, I just can't wait to check out her book. And also, Sam Reed is like a pretty nice guy, right? Uh, love it. Dreamy and nice and humorous. What more can you want? Can't wait for more interviews. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Oh my god, thank you for calling in. Thank you for the good vibes. And I know, Sam Reed, just sweet. A sweet little baby angel. I want to see him like in a coffee house with a giant mug. You know what I mean? Like writing poetry or something. That's the vibe I kind of get from him. And that would be exciting. But maybe that's just the fan fiction I'm writing in my spare time. You guys, I love these voicemails. They fill my heart with joy to know that I am not alone. Please call in with your thoughts and burning vampire questions to 888-788-VAMP. That's 888-788-8267. I know I say it every week, but I mean it. I am shouting at my TV all alone, and my dog is staring at me like, get it together. What is happening? So I need you to call in. Okay, I'm going to calm down now. Next week is the season one finale. Yes, we're already at the end. I know, I know. I am emotional and stressed just thinking about it. But don't worry, we're okay. Not only do we know we have a season two coming, next week we will have both of our vampire lovers on the pod. Yes, Henny, kings of the Commonwealth, Jacob Anderson, who plays Louis, and Sam Reed, who plays Lestat, will join us to debrief on this finale. And we're going to need it. We're going to need to start a prayer circle. We're going to need to hold hands and just try to just get right. We will also be joined for one final time by Professor Tanana Reeve Du, UCLA professor of Black Horror. You know I could not finish this series without hearing from my favorite professor and also my play cousin and my auntie and my best friend. Thanks for listening to the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire podcast. Watch new episodes of Interview with the Vampire every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC Plus. Podcast episodes drop the same day. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, go to amcplus.com and use promo code INTERVIEWPOD. That's interview P-O-D. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Our producers are Ben Goldberg and Aaron Kelly. Our associate producer is Natalie Paert. Darby Maloney is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. Thank you again to Levin Atkin and Jewel Gomez for joining us. And I am Naomi Akparagin. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees.